<clears throat> this morning there was a most inspiring piece of news, um, a rare event, and that was that this year the Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to the Dalai Lama. Yeah, it was really so moving. I, I still get chills just talking about it. Um, just what what it said to me was that not just for his peace efforts in Tibet, but that <clears throat> somehow the real, I mean, he's the embodiment of what it really means to be at peace, as far as I can tell, kind of what our work here is all about. <clears throat> and it felt like somehow that's a recognition that the world is in some way is coming to recognize the value and the power of this. And it's kind of hard for me to talk about. But it moved me a lot, and I wanted to share it with you. So, (laughs) to the mundane, not really mundane, but in talking about the level of peace that someone like the Dalai Lama, at least from our projections of watching him, has attained. And knowing that our intentions and our firm commitment is also working in this direction. And yet still seeing how much our minds continue to be caught in the distortions of perception. How even though we may have had very clear insights into the painful and distorting natures of greed, hatred, and delusion, and we really know it. And then we turn around and we're acting from that again. The mind is caught in that mode again. So I want to talk a little bit about the power of conditioning. That We need to really respect this, not to look at it as there's some problem with us that we haven't understood, but that the power of this is immense and we'll... We'll be touching on it the whole retreat. I'm just introducing it a little. And then how the power of mindfulness, how it, it, one of the, some of the ways that it actually works to begin to help us see through these distortions and how we can actually use specific ways of using the mindfulness in our practice, what mindfulness actually means. A book I read not long ago, I found fascinating as regards the power of conditioning, of distorting perceptions in our mind, that it's actually so often, it's not as if we have a conscious choice, but that the the perceptions are distorted on an unconscious level, that certain things never even reach our consciousness. They've been filtered out way before. And this book, uh, just give a few examples, it's coming from a scientific, psychological, scientific perspective. And so he gives a few examples of experiments that have been conducted to to show this. The first, not an experiment, but a story, shows how on a physical level there seem to be mechanisms that block the perception, sometimes of great pain, in a situation where where to actually feel that amount of pain would possibly mean the difference between surviving and not surviving. 
And he gives a story, actually, of, I think it's Livingston, Stanley or Livingston, one of the two of them, who, was, who wrote this himself. And he was being mauled by a lion, and conscious, and he lived through it. And in recounting it later, he said he just did not feel pain at that time. And probably most of you have times in your own life you can think of, I know I can, when I've been in accidents and at the moment of impact felt no pain at all to the point where I could bounce up and be on the side of the road in a tenth of a second out of harm's way and within two minutes was unable to move an arm and a leg. Somehow it's like a survival mechanism. This pain doesn't get through. The perception of the pain doesn't get through to consciousness. And so he takes this a step further, talking about how the the mind seems to be able to screen perceptions so that certain stimuli, which are now more in the psychological realm, perceived as threatening, anxiety-provoking, or really in some in some some cases maybe literally life-threatening, are also screened out. They never reach consciousness. A couple of examples. One, um, and this would deal more with the, the quality of mind of grasping, of one-pointedness on something. Some, some people were asked <clears throat> to watch us about a four minutes on a video of a very fast basketball game, and were given the assignment to count how many times the ball was passed back and forth. So it was very active, and they did that. And um, <clears throat> at, in the middle of this video of this game, and through the court, a woman strolled, dressed in white, with a white parasol. And she just kind of strolled in one side and out the other. At the end, people said how many times the ball had been passed. No one commented on this woman. And in fact, when told about it, they couldn't believe that it had happened. Just hadn't seen it. Had to watch it again. Oh, my God. It's amazing. The second um, experiment is more dealing with um, stimuli that would provoke anxiety. And so they showed the subjects different uh, pictures. And the pictures, well, they'd have different things in them, but the one that that I remember had like half of the picture was just something real innocuous, a a man reading a newspaper. And then the other half was something um, sexually suggestive and also obviously not fitting in with the other part of the picture. Now, the people were asked to look at the pictures, there were several of them, and then later describe what the pictures were of, what they could remember. But the second trick that the investigators had was, I don't know how, but they had some kind of a device that could measure where the eyeball looked when they were looking at the pictures. So they could know not only if someone later said they forgot, and people who, for some reason, um, the, the sexual images were anxiety-provoking or upsetting, often or usually when they reported on the pictures, just said, well, there's a picture of a man reading a newspaper. But what they could measure was that the eyeball had never even looked at the part of the picture that was anxiety-provoking. How? God knows. But somehow there was a way of, of t- pre-screening ahead of time. So oh, this, if this is taken in, it's going to provoke anxiety, so we won't even take it in. So we wonder 
why we're living with distorted perceptions, why we feel out of touch and disconnected. I mean, we don't know what's going on half the time. So we're living with these filters, these distortions on our conscious perception, kind of blind spots in our experience. Certain things that we have selective memory, we just don't remember. Selective perception, we just don't allow the perception into consciousness. And when I say we don't allow it, I don't mean to imply that this is some kind of conscious, willful decision. This is operating on very subtle levels. But it's no wonder that we feel out of touch. And we wonder why things don't quite work. So these filters, these are the afflictions, the calaces, the whatever word we want to use. The, the most predominant, strongest ones are greed and hatred or aversion, fear, the forms of that. And identification, the confusion, delusion. So when aversion, hatred, when that's the operant filter, the way we relate can take many forms. Aversion, avoidance, outright denial, not even letting it in like I was describing. Just block what our experience is. I've seen it done in a way that is where a person is just outright denying that they're perceiving what they're perceiving in front of their eyes. Once when I was in a hospital, um, I'd been there a few days, and they'd been doing a lot of tests, and I was kind of at, at the end of whatever equanimity I had. And they were trying to do some procedure that was, if had they done it the first time, it wouldn't have been that painful, but for some reason they couldn't do it. And so about the fourth time, the nurse couldn't handle it anymore and called in a doctor. I knew I was in trouble then, because nurses can do these things usually better than doctors. And so he was like digging in my arm, and I started crying. And he looked at me and said, what's your problem? This doesn't hurt. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) That's like the most blatant form of denial. And I understood he couldn't handle it, that he was hurting me. Or how often have I've seen in relationship where some part of that relationship is so important to me or perceived as so important that there is complete denial in my mind of many aspects that are painful, difficult, not working, and only when the relationship actually breaks up and I have nothing to protect anymore, I kind of wake up and say, my God, I can't believe I thought it was a perfect relationship and look at all this stuff. We couldn't even talk. And that's, that's true. And it's hard to believe that one could have been so blind until the next time it happens again. <laughs> <laughs> and so greed, greed works, it's that tunnel vision, like the people watching the basketballs pass back and forth. When greed's operant, we see the object of what we want. Everything else is either ignored or in the way. And then identification, of course, and each of these is topics and topics in itself. Identification is that 
identifying any facet of our experience as solid me, unchanging I, something core, root part of our existence. And so this is delusion. When we're operating from these skewed perceptions, we're operating from delusion and we're out of touch with our experience. And we continue to suffer and not really quite know why. So this is where mindfulness comes in, luckily for us. And as I was reading this book, I kept thinking, oh, mindfulness is definitely the cure for this. Because the key to wisdom is being able to see, to experience the actuality of what's happening here and now, just as it is in this moment, not being hindered by our defenses, by our wants, by our anxieties, our expectations. And the key tool to be able to see what's happening here and now is the quality of mindfulness. As we practice and develop it, because it takes a great deal of practice and development, as mindfulness grows, its light shines equally on each arising aspect of our experience without discrimination. So after a while, as just each thing arises, we begin to perceive previously submerged, so to speak, aspects of our experience because there's no discrimination going on. We're not heading to one thing and keeping away something else, but just meeting whatever arises with a fullness of attention. We begin to see the filters themselves. And when we see them, then there's simply another object to pay attention to rather than some dark force that is driving our life. And this develops a wonderful spaciousness of mind, great equanimity, great acceptance of mind. The Buddha said that there's no higher happiness than peace. And as we continue to work in this way, we start to you know, get a taste of what that means. A real peace that's not dependent on having our environment be a certain way. So we begin to be able to stop trying to control things so busily, trying to order our experience so that the unpleasant stays away and the pleasant comes begin to greet all things equally. Really learning that peace is not dependent on what experience we're having, but it's completely dependent on our relationship to that experience. And that's something that I feel like I can't say enough, saying it to myself as well as you guys. It doesn't matter what object is arising in the consciousness. It's the relationship to it, the quality of meeting it with mindfulness, with spacious, open, active attention. That's important. 
And that's where understanding will arise from. So I want to discuss some of the qualities of mindfulness as we work with it sitting here in this meditation retreat. The Buddha said that mindfulness is the greatest protection we have in life and it's also the only protection we need in life. It protects us in lots of ways, one of them being that it protects us from being heedless. By being heedless, I mean that way that we kind of drift through life like we're asleep, not really quite aware of what's happening. And you know so often how we experience, I know it comes up a lot for me when I'm sitting and my mind finally gets quiet, that sense of, of loss that comes from so many things that have gone by that I wasn't really present for. And almost every time I visit my family and I go with these, these great commitments of how present I'm going to be and how loving, and then when I leave, this always happens. I have this sense of remorse for just being heedless in many, in many ways, just not being present. And outside of retreat, it so often takes a major event to, to wake us up out of this sense of heedlessness. I know hearing uh, of Deepama's death this year, actually that was the strongest effect it had on me. A sense of this wonderful loving being and now she's just not here in the snap of a finger. And it just woke me up to all the little moments of my life, of just being present for what's happening now. And I know we all have moments like this over and over. Mindfulness also has the power to do this, to wake us up in this way very strongly. And it doesn't always have to take the death of a loved one or something equally traumatic. But you know those moments when you can walk outside and see a leaf turning red and it's so exquisite, it's so beautiful. Or you're drinking a cup of tea and somehow you're really drinking that cup of tea, you've never tasted a cup of tea or one sip of tea that was so wonderful. And later you think, well, it's just old chamomile. I've had that a million times. This is this quality of heedfulness, of being able to be with what's happening in the moment and really appreciate it for what it is. The power of mindfulness, simplicity, slowing down, and the very deliberate practice of attention. And in those moments when it's so vivid and so exquisite, what's happening is we're seeing without the filters. We're able to appreciate the moment for just what it is, not needing it to be something else, not trying to get away from it, not spacing out because it's not interesting enough, but just settling in and being there the way it is. 
So that's one way that mindfulness protects us. Protects us from heedlessness by bringing this clarity of vision, this simplicity of mind to our experience, the ability to appreciate what's happening just for what it is. Often, when we talk about mindfulness in conversation or thinking about it, there can be a tendency to think of the actual experience of mindfulness as kind of its awareness. You know, I'm aware of this, I'm aware of that. When I walk down the street, I'm aware that I'm walking down the street. I'm aware that I'm going to the lunch line. I'm aware that I'm hungry. We use it quite loosely and often interchangeably with mindfulness. But mindfulness is really much more specific and has very specific qualities. The translation that we've been using for it a lot for mindfulness is observing power. And to me, that gives uh, kind of a gestalt feeling of what the energy of mindfulness is really like. It's an observing power. So I want to list a few of the qualities of it. And if you could, when I'm talking about them, also try and listen in an experiential way. If you can get in touch in yourself with how these energies manifest, because it's really, I'm putting it in words, but it's really an active experience. Each moment that observing power is meeting an object, there's a very concrete experiential thing going on. I'm trying to put a lot of words to it to try and explain that. So the first quality is this seeing and talking in terms of working in the retreat format now. Seeing the object that's arising into consciousness just as it arises as it is. In other words, it's as if You're sitting, a a sense of tingling arises. In that moment, it's as if the noting mind, the consciousness, springs up to meet that object. Without hesitation and without anticipation, either one. And so there's this very active sense of object and observing power mindfulness coming together. If there's hesitation, a slight sense of, even though it's not time to put it into words, a sense of, well, don't want to go to that tingling, no, maybe I'll wait, maybe I'll go back to the breath. Usually that hesitation is the movement of the distortions, of the afflictions, some sense of choice. You know, either it's nice, I want to pay attention to that, I'll wait till something better comes along, or just the real subtle, unconscious wanting to avoid certain things that might cause anxiety. This springing up to meet the object without hesitation, there's no choice involved, no thinking involved. It's just an active but non-judging movement. Each object come together. Object, noting mind, come together. Active energetic quality. Also not a sense of clinging to whatever sensation or experience is happening. Well, this is kind of interesting. I should see it through to the end, even though something else has arisen and is more predominant. Something else arises, the noting mind rises up to meet it. 
There's no clinging to the first object. Also, no sense of anticipating, well, let's hurry up and get through this one so we can get to one that maybe will be more interesting. A full active participation in whatever experience is arising and an equal ability to just let it go and move just as fully to the next experience. That's one reason using the breath as a primary object can be so helpful. Because if you ever find yourself in a state where you're not sure which object is predominant or where to go or starting to get confused, rather than trying to figure it out, which is, which is unless you're in a very clear state, the figuring it out is almost certainly going to lead into some greed or some anger. It's almost going to certainly be colored a little bit by that. Just go back to the breath so that there's not a sense of really having to choose at all. Confusion, note confusion, back to the breath. Sometimes, some of us have experienced, maybe a lot of people have experienced, that there are times when in working with, with noting, with mindfulness in general, but with this quality of just not hesitating, but springing up to meet the object, almost as if we experience a fear and we hold back just a little bit, almost as if we're afraid to put that level of commitment, that level of surrender into the observing power. And it could be a lot of reasons why we're holding back. Fear that I can't do it. Fear of what might happen if we really surrender into the process. Fear of what we might see. Lots of different reasons. I just want to bring that up because in the slight holding back, just that little bit of space gives room for doubt, gives room for the thinking mind to expand gives room for proliferation. And again, it tends to lead towards more confusion. Whereas when we work, and it takes practice, it's not you just sit down and immediately you're going to see everything arising the moment it's arising. I'm not implying that. It takes practice. But our willingness to continue that active engagement as we do that object after object and we miss less and less objects the mindfulness becomes very sharp and powerful. We really begin to see in much deeper and deeper levels, levels of what's going on. So the second aspect of mindfulness, and this we've talked about a lot, is that it enables us, it's about seeing the bare experience, what's actually going on, as opposed to taking the concept, the interpretations of the experience to be the truth. It's about seeing directly without the veil of interpretation. And we all know this. You know, we all know the difference between noting hearing when you hear the bell ring and thinking, oh, that's the bell ringing, it's time for the sitting to end. And even though we all know it, still the concepts, can be so subtle or so insidious or we're so identified with them, so used to seeing them that it can sometimes be very hard 
to separate out the concept from the bare experience. Just to give a very common example, if following the breath, rising and falling, and the experience of it is is very tight, very tense, very unpleasant and pressured, and each breath, the thoughts that are going on, oh, this is because I'm such a rigid, controlling, ungenerous person. This is just the proof of it. Each falling, you know, God, I can't believe how rigid I am. And it's so hard sometimes to just know tightness, tension. Each breath becomes a proof of how unworthy we are to be in a meditation environment, to live on the planet, to have friends. You know, it just goes on and on. And when it's not seen clearly, which it often isn't, that movement of aversion, basically, to the tension leads into that concept of what a rotten person we are. And that judgment, that aversion unseen, leads into a world of proliferation. So that by the end of the sitting, you've gone over every ungenerous, unkind thing you ever did in your life and expanded on it and pretty much got an image set in concrete of what you are. And we all do this over and over. And when you finally say, oh, oh, this is just tension, and this is aversion, and this is interpreting. It's so freeing, but it's so tricky because we turn around and it happens again. So not to put ourselves down for it, but the power of mindfulness, this being able to cut through and be with the bare sensation. And noting is really helpful in situations like this. We're able to note the sensation as it is, tightness, and the fact that there's aversion to it, aversion, and the fact that there's a concept forming about who we are. And it doesn't necessarily need to go any further. And even if it does, we're not so lost in delusion. We're knowing that this is sensation, this is aversion, this is interpretation and image building. We're connected with what's happening. And so it's not to discard the use of concepts, but to tell the difference. And the more that we work with developing the power of mindfulness, the more we find that this happens that it's much easier to get in touch with the actual experience in a moment. It's much easier to see how much of the suffering we're undergoing is coming about from an interpretation that might or might not have anything to do with what our experience actually is. So in this way, Observing power, mindfulness, protects us from getting lost in the delusions and confusions created by the mind, by interpretation. And we begin to actually relate in our lives to what's actually happening. It's quite a unique event sometimes. And things become so much simpler, so much less troublesome, 
And we're back to being able to appreciate much more when we're relating to what's actually happening and not lost in the veils of interpretation. Mindfulness protects us in this way because when we're really mindful of what's happening, whether it's tension, whether it's aversion, whether it's the breath, when that power of mind, of the observing mind, springs forward to meet the object, in that moment, there's no room for overwhelming greed or hatred or confusion to arise and overpower the mind. The mind and the object are coming together so completely that there's no space for the defilements, the afflictions, to arise and to overpower as they do. So that's why we're always going on about really connect with the object. That's also why continuity is so important. Because each moment that we let up the mindfulness, that we're not mind, there is room for the distortions of wanting, the distortions of aversion, the distortions of identification to arise. And they're so powerful. There's such habitual reactions of mind that we find that basically, given an opportunity to arise, these things do arise. They're just so strongly conditioned. But it's also important, I feel, not to underestimate the power of those moments when the mindfulness is clear, when you feel there's a real connection, there's just the experiencing of an object directly as it is, a clear experience of the breath, a time when you walk outside and the tree is just so vivid, there's nothing in that moment but the experience of seeing, of treeness. In those moments of close connection, the, the distortions, the filters aren't there. And it's important. Those moments are important because in the moment of mindfulness, it's, it's a moment of purification because just for that reason, the distortions of greed, hatred, and delusion aren't arising in that moment. It's breaking the conditioning, the power of, of the afflictions arising. And that's really important. It kind of breaks the chain, even if just for a moment. But each moment that we're some kind of deconditioning or reconditioning the responses of the mind is really valuable. And, and so I just like to put it out that it might seem like no big deal, but it's, it is an important part of the practice. Those moments really count. And this sense of purification comes about the sense of having no space for the greedy mind, for the hating mind to arise. It's not from um, an energy of repression. It's not from a violent pushing away these, these energies. So the next quality of observing power is that it's totally nonviolent. It's non-manipulative, non-controlling. 
It's a quality of mind that, although it's quite active, it's not trying to change the experience in any way whatsoever. Only trying to be there, meet it, accept it very fully and very actively, but accepting it just as it is. It's been said that spiritual practice consists in reaching out and embracing all life fearlessly with an open heart. And this is the quality that we bring to connecting with each object in our experience, no matter what it is, embracing it fearlessly with an open heart. So observing power has this spirit of kindness, of metta even, to each thing that arises, to oneself. A quality of great spaciousness of mind. Quality like, um, like last night, just as it was getting dark, I was walking outside and in the, in the just, getting dark sky, there's, I don't know if some of you saw it, a really beautiful crescent moon and the evening star. Exquisite. It was so beautiful. And as I was standing there, I realized I was kind of focusing on the crescent moon and the star, and suddenly my mind just did a flip, and I became aware of all the space around it, the whole space of the sky. And that's kind of the quality of mind that goes with the observing power the space that is present for anything that comes into it. But it doesn't try to change it, it doesn't manipulate, it doesn't push away, it has no choice. But it cradles, it holds whatever arises into the space and then it lets it go when it's time for it to go. And this is the quality of mind that we can bring to mindfulness, to observing allows the whole range of experience to come and go without a problem, with a real sweetness and openness. Sometimes a specific concept that there are a hundred million, but I just want to talk about this one, that gets in our way of being able to meet whatever arises with this non-manipulative loving quality is concepts we have about good practice. If we think we know what good practice looks like, whether it's from another sitting we've had, whether it's from anything any of us say, whether it's from the person you've picked out who walks so incredibly mindfully you've decided that's good practice, You make up what's going on in their mind and then know that's good practice, whether whatever it's from. Once that idea is ingrained and not seen, it makes it really hard to embrace our experiences that we have that don't come anywhere close to meeting our ideas of good practice. And so then we're in conflict. I just mentioned that because it's one that we all get trapped in a lot. And just to notice if that's operating. Notice that. That's another concept. Embrace that concept and then don't let it undermine the ability to meet whatever's happening happening with a real openness, a real nonviolence, loving quality. 
Another quality of mindfulness is that it's not superficial. It's very penetrating. So that's when we're talking about, we talk about aim, aiming at the object and sustaining the attention. This non-superficiality is that the mind springs forward, meets the object, and then completely immerses itself in it. Again, it's not a sense of holding back, not a sense of jumping over to the next. Like Upandita uses the example of when you pour water into a glass, it doesn't just stay in one part of the glass, it covers the whole glass. That's the quality of mindfulness, just really sinking into whatever's happening. Not a casual glance and on to the next. And again, this develops as we work. And to work with all of these, all of these qualities that I've been talking about, it's very important to develop, and we talk about it and we'll talk about it over and over, the quality of right balance of effort, the quality of learning to aim at whatever is arising in the mind and then springing forward, so to say, to meet it with an appropriate amount of energy. And it takes a lot of experimentation to learn, and it changes all the time. How to modulate the amount of energy we use. And we'll talk a lot about the idea of the arrow shooting at the target, and you have to aim it, and you also have to shoot it with the proper amount of force. So it's possible often not to have enough energy, and we just kind of There's an object and we kind of note it and we kind of observe it and things get vaguer and vaguer. The other possibility, though, is that we're using so much force and so much effort. And most of the way I've been talking tonight, I keep talking about springing up, really springing forward, meeting the object. It's possible to do that with so much force and energy that you get really knotted up, rigid and tight, that you're not really meeting the object and we're trying to club it to death. It's working with a balance uh, between the active meeting and when that's too forceful with a quality of alert receptivity. And so in that space, if you find that you're using too much force, it can be helpful to move back into the analogy of the mind being like space open, receptive, yet very alert. But rather than pushing forward to meet the experience, in that alert receptivity, the experience rises up to meet the consciousness. As soon as it rises up, the alert part is to acknowledge it, note it, be with it. But it's not such a striving, pushing quality. And for all of this, of course, patience is absolutely necessary. Patience and patience and endless patience. Because how many objects arise into our experience in one sitting? And how many times do we space out in one sitting? Never mind going through the whole day. And that's okay. That's fine. It's just the quality and working with continuity 
especially this quality of patience. It doesn't matter what's happening. But as soon as we're aware that we've been gone for 10 minutes and we wake up, there's something to come back to, whether it's the breath, whether it's your hand, feeling the fork in your hand, whether you're bringing a cup to your lips, whether you're flushing the toilet, it doesn't matter what. There's something to come back to, the actual concrete experience. And the patience is just the willingness to come back a hundred million times, over and over. And that very willingness to come back is strengthening the power of the mindfulness, the power of the concentration. It actually is part of the practice, not something that we have to endure in order to get somewhere. But look at those moments as equally important as any other moment. So, four of the protections that I've named, I just want to run through them again, that I feel very, very valuable, very powerful that mindfulness offers us. And one is that when we're working with mindfulness, we're protected from heedlessness, from walking through life in a daze, from not knowing what we're doing. It protects us A moment of mindfulness protects us from being lost in the distortions of greed, hatred, and delusion. It enables us to see the truth for ourselves. In some ways, I feel like this is the most powerful one. Because what we've seen, what we've understood for ourselves, nobody can take away from us. No one can say it's not true. Mindfulness in enabling us to connect with, experience the actuality of just this moment and just this moment. That's what sets the conditions for liberating insight to arise. And the final protection is that, as is often said, in protecting ourselves, we protect all others. So knowing that we're not doing this in isolation and that as these protections grow, as we begin to grow in wisdom, in understanding, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, without understanding, we are unable to love. And so as we grow in understanding through the power of mindfulness, it's just spontaneous that the power of metta and compassion grow as well. And this protection that's growing in ourselves, that flows out, that that affects, that's how we relate to the world, to other beings. It affects ourselves and everyone else that we come in contact with. You know, we're not separate from society. And so it's really a very powerful protection. And just as once we've experienced and understood the truth for ourselves, no one can take it away, also no one can give it to us. We have to come to these understandings for ourselves. We have to do the work for ourselves in whatever form we're doing it. No one else can do it for us. 
And so we can take the Dharma as our refuge and also taking your own practice, take yourself, your experience as a refuge. No one else can give you freedom just as no one can take it away. And so what we're doing here is really powerful, very important. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, Archipelago, I never know how to say it. Um, Talking about, at one point, he was talking about the day of liberation when these people who had been in um, the prison camps under Stalin were released. And he says, The day of liberation, as if it were possible to liberate anyone who has not first become liberated in their own soul. And, And I would add that it's also impossible to take away the freedom of anyone who's been liberated in their own soul. So hopefully that's what we're working on here. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.